Hey, Jim. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Hey, gang. Um, I'm still standing, so that's good. Oh, hey, good. Was there a question about whether or not you would be? Oh, you know, I spent part of the day on a roof that always, you know, opens up to some possibilities. So what can I do for you? Yeah, so Pam and I have been talking with different solar contractors about pain points in their business, and we wanted to talk today with you about uh, customer trust in the buying process. But before we get there, I just wanted to ask you, you and I did a video a few years back, and I remember that you talked a lot in that video about customer communication uh, and honest communication. And I'm wondering, can you define what honest communication is for you? For us, you know, honest communication is actually pretty straightforward. It it means being completely candid with a potential client. You know, that starts by the fact that not every potential client is a good fit for solar, and you need to be able to tell them that. So, you know, if there's too much shading, there's just not enough roof space because of being a multifaceted roof that's not going to provide a system that's going to serve their needs Those are kind of preliminary questions that need to be addressed. And then as you go farther along in the development of a proposal, you need to be fair and honest with your client as to what that system will actually do for them. So, for example, when we started, which was, you know, back in, I think our first proposals went out the door in 2007, When we were first putting out proposals, you know, we were really um, struggling to try to figure out how to evaluate what the savings would be. And, you know, that caused me to develop a series of spreadsheets that modeled both Pasadena Water and Power and SoCal Edison rate structures for our clients. And that gave me a pretty good answer to the question. But over time, you know, we've looked at more and more complex rate structures, demand rate structures, et cetera. And now you run into a whole different set of problems, time of use rate structures, where now just having monthly bills isn't going to give you the connection that you need to give an accurate answer. And so we've moved on to more sophisticated tools. So we are uh, we use utility API to collect interval data from potential clients, and we've moved over to Energy Toolbase as a means for us to provide really detailed proposals, matching up actual uh, client data, um, whether it's on a 15-minute interval or an hourly interval against you know, modeled production data from either Helioscope or NREL um, PV watts. So, you know, over time, that that need to be able to come up with a fair answer to the question of, well, what is this going to actually save me has evolved as our mm-hmm. understanding of what that question really entails. It has led us to get ever more sophisticated with the tools that we use so that we can have a a high degree of confidence that when we tell the user, yeah, year one, that your savings are going to look like this, we're pretty confident that that we're going to hit that number. And we generally are pretty conservative with our estimates, so we tend to outperform what we said we would do. And that's, 
you know, that allows you to err on the side of if there is a surprise for the client down the road, it's a good one, not a bad one. And then, you know, in terms of the actual process, you know, there's a lot of folks out there right now who are giving proposals to people and having people sign contracts without ever having anyone who's technically qualified look at the job site, which invariably is going to lead to change orders down the road and oftentimes added cost that was not made apparent to the potential client at the out front because the people doing the selling didn't know what they were looking at. We don't take that approach. We have very, very few change orders on our on our projects unless, you know, something substantial changes from what we understood the situation to be or the client changes their mind. But we have basically no change orders because, oh, we didn't realize that was that. You, you have to change out your service panel. <laughs> well, okay, you should have known that before you had somebody sign a contract. So, you know, I think I think honest communication with clients from the first moment that you contact them all the way through to, you know, delivering owner materials at the end of the job that gives them as-built drawings and soft permits and, you know, all the materials that they would ever need to reference with regards to that project in one place it's it's a continuum of process steps, if you will, that each step along the way is driven by giving this potential client and ultimate actual client the best possible information you can give them. Jim, that's really interesting uh, as an overview. I was wondering, can you can you perhaps tell us a particularly memorable story about one of those first clients that you brought on board and that moment when you knew you had gained their trust, what was it? Um, so I'm thinking back to like one of our very um, earliest clients since somebody from back in 2007 and um, they had talked to several other people. One of the things that they actually liked about us was that we were local as opposed to, you know, a bigger company, if you will. And there was just um, a connection that occurred. And I think part of it goes to the teacher background that I have. Um, I've spent a lot of years teaching in a lot of different levels as either my full-time employment or um, as an adjunct type of, of teaching. And that comes through in the communications that I have with potential clients because, and it's actually one of the things that got me into the business in the first place was because I was interested in getting solar on my house and I had a bunch of folks come out and I would talk to them and, you know, it was like they had a script and, and they were good with the script. But once you asked them a question that was out of the book, they were kind of lost. They really didn't know how to answer it. And oftentimes they'd just start making stuff up. And, you know, I had a, <laughs> I had a guy start to say, ah, well, you know, volts, amps, it's all the same thing. And, oh. and I, thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, my ninth grade electronics teacher would not have accepted that answer. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I realized that there was a lot of people who were talking to folks who really didn't know what they were talking about. And I felt that if 
we could develop as a company where when we interacted with folks, we answered their questions. Like we really gave them fact-based answers to their questions. And if we didn't know an answer to a question standing there at the time, we didn't try to BS our way through it. We would say, hey, that's a really good question. Let me get back to you on it. You know, and it was, I think, that willingness to have, first of all, educated ourselves to understand what the answers needed to be, but to also be candid with folks when, you know, you got asked something that gosh, that's a good one. I'm, you got me, I'm stumped, you know, especially at the beginning. I mean, you know, when you've, when you've been doing this for six months, it's not like you can't be asked a question you don't know the answer to, you know, at this point, 11 years in most questions that people ask me, I have an answer for them, but I think it was that, that kind of got it on the road. It was that understanding on our part that having answers to questions that was legitimate and not just winging it and talking to people who were actually smart enough to discern that difference. And that's one of the things about our clients. Our clients don't tend to be the kind of person that's going to sign a contract when somebody shows up at their door and kind of pushes it on them, tend to do their homework. They tend to be better educated, maybe a little more cautious in how they do things. And so we are a good fit for that kind of a client. And they hear from us what they're looking for. And I think that's, that's where the connection gets made. I hear you talk a lot about the, you know, the sales process. You're doing a ton of work on the back end to understand exactly what value you can bring to the customer. But when you have that first meeting, are you telling them, look, this is, this is complex stuff and we've figured it out? Or are you kind of just waiting to answer their questions and let them lead the, the process? What's, what's your sales process in that sense? I don't think I try to suggest to them that this is terribly complex. I think some of the pieces of it, you know, if you're trying to work through a time of use rate structure to see how that's going to line up with the production of the system, you know, that requires tools to be able to do that legitimately. But from a client perspective, they don't see that. What they learn from us is, okay, here's what a time of use rate is. Here's how it's different from a tiered rate. You know, this is how it's going to make a difference in the value of your system going forward, something like that. You know, part of, of teaching, and I don't, <laughs> I'll confess that I don't always hit this right, but part of teaching is bringing the level of your delivery up or down to meet the needs of your audience, right? And we have clients who are literally rocket scientists at JPL, and they want to be as technical as you can possibly imagine. And, you know, we have social workers who are our clients, and they don't need that level of technical detail, but they are really big on having that sense of trust. You know, so I think... When we talk to a client, we largely let, we kind of have a general description of what the system will do and what the process is. And we try to answer or outline that in a way that is sufficiently comprehensive that there will be no surprises, but not necessarily, you know, excruciatingly detailed. And then we let them ask questions. And we typically spend between a half an hour to an hour with a potential client talking on the first meeting 
answering their questions. And oftentimes, you know, we'll have spoken to them on the phone or exchanged emails beforehand and have answered questions in those contexts as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of time that is spent, you know, trying to answer questions, including after a proposal is submitted. But we largely let the client's needs dictate the level of that. Interesting. And Jim, you have a very, very large content library. Do you find that your blog and this content library, which is very good, do you find that this is part of that process as well, mining content from that back catalog to help in that discussion? Absolutely. There's a couple of things as to that. So, you know, we've written at length about, you know, why we don't think leases are a good deal for potential clients. And we've written about um, tax rate structures, and we've written about demand charges, and we've written about the difference from net metering 1.0 to net metering 2.0 here in California, and on and on around those kinds of topics, and, you know, lots of other things as well. And so what frequently happens is a potential client will have found us in the course of doing whatever research they're doing to better understand some of the issues. So, you know, it's not uncommon that we'll be standing there talking with someone and we'll be referencing something and we'll say, oh, yeah, well, we wrote a blog post about, you know, this last week. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I saw that. (laughs) Um, Or... You know, if if they didn't see it, and it's a blog post that's on point, um, in a follow-up email after our meeting, we'll send them a link to the blog post so that, you know, that they can actually get that material and understand, because it, it does give them a second bite at the apple, if you will. They've heard us talk about the issue, but now they can sit there and read what we have to say about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the ultimate extension of that is... Several years ago, I wrote a book on commercial solar step-by-step, and that book was largely driven from blog posts that I had written in the year or two prior that I then, you know, put together as a book with the idea that when we would go and talk to potential commercial clients, we would give them a copy of the book so that they would have something physical that they could refer to and kind of help get educated on the process. So, you know, we've given out lots and lots of books over the last few years. Jim, I'm just kind of curious about your writing process. Are you using the blog to write about or explore ideas that you don't already know the answer to? Um, I certainly have done that. So back when uh, the California Solar Initiative was at its heyday, for about three years, I wrote a series of articles analyzing the CSI data. And it was sort of a treasure trove that basically nobody was looking at. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get a better handle on what the, what would this data tell us? What would, What could we see about trends with you know, who is using what products and how much were they charging people and how big were these systems that were being installed and where were they being installed. And, you know, there was a lot that you could tease out of this data. And that series of articles, uh, there's like nine of them all together, probably was the most uh, significant thing that I wrote 
in the in the history of that blog. You know, it ended up getting me quoted in the Wall Street Journal and the Guardian newspaper and you know a bunch of other places because I was examining stuff that nobody else was looking at. And you know, the data was there for anybody who wanted to touch it, but most people weren't. Beyond that, though, I would say what what motivates me on articles is more about being aware of an issue that I think would be helpful to people. So, for example, Calcia just wrote up um, kind of an email with kind of a summary of what were the major bills that got signed into law this year that affect the solar um, space. And so that's on my list of things to turn into a blog post. And so it's it's kind of driven by that. You know, I read things like Jan Brandt's Solar Wake Up, and I get ideas for pieces from that. And, you know, once we have a better understanding of what's coming out of the trade case, I'll be writing an article or two to try to explain that to potential clients. So it's a, it's a mix of both. But these days, I think it's more you know, trying to highlight an issue that I think people need to know about or would benefit from reading about, or it's just something that's ticked me off. <laughs> Frankly, I want to respond to it. I have a whole category on of blog posts under the name ranting. So, you know, that probably tells you something. Jim, uh, I wanted to kind of follow up on uh something interesting that you said as you were talking about, you know, writing, which was these, um, these quotes that you got and like the wall street journal and, and the, and the guardian, did that actually help you get credibility with prospective clients? It's so funny you say that. Um, yes. The short answer is yes. I had a client who was in chambers in federal court here in Los Angeles and um, she read the Wall Street Journal every day, and they were thinking about going solar. And she saw this article, and there I was being quoted on, you know, this policy issue. And so she picked up the phone and called me. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where you know you always they're asking uh, potential clients, you know, where did you hear from us or of us? How did you find out to call us? And it's not that often that the answer is, well, I saw you in the Wall Street Journal. You know, Angie's List is a little more common. Jim, I'm wondering, how often do they tell you that they made a decision about going with you based on your blog? I wouldn't say that they they would frame it that way. It would be more that, you know, they were looking at a bunch of different websites. And, you know, if you look at a lot of websites in the solar space, many of them are lead gathering um, devices and nothing more. There's really no substance whatsoever. And some other websites, maybe in addition to the lead gathering, they also have, you know, a little bit of substance. They'll have, you know, pictures of installs and that sort of thing, but not much in the way of policy or how the economics of solar actually works in any great detail. And if they do, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's half a page on the website and it never gets refreshed. So... You know, when people are looking for stuff and they find our website, which, you know, just doesn't look like most people's websites in the space, and they start finding articles that answer questions that they were interested in or concerned about, 
it's like, okay, so here's somebody who, A, seems to know what they're talking about, and B, seems interested in doing something other than just selling me something, is actually interested in trying to teach me something. And, you know, I think it's it's that sense that it's more than just a sale. It's more than just a come on, but rather it's part of educating folks that I think is, is what they find valuable. And so then, you know, that encourages them to, okay, well, let's give these guys a call and let's see what, you know, what they're like for real. You know, and if, and if in person, if we weren't able to measure up to the content that we've created, you know, I, I think we wouldn't be successful. But the people that work here have all been able to meet that standard. And so whether they're talking to me or they were talking to Laurel or they're talking to Sarah, or they talked to Velvet, you know, it really doesn't matter because every one of them is able to respond to their questions in a way that inspires confidence. It's having that content that helps people find us in the first place, feel like we maybe are a trustworthy operation to talk to, but then when they actually talk to folks who represent the organization, they get that same sense confirmed. Interesting. So we've, we've talked a lot about building trust. So now I want to throw at you the other side of the coin. How about a time when you completely lost the trust of a client? Like mid-project, something goes completely sideways, something like that. What happened and what did you do to get it back? So my most difficult client is also a twofer. We've done two projects for them. Um, and the largest project we have done, we did for them. <laughs> and there were issues in both projects. One was a relatively small project on their orders building. And then the second one, uh, Tom was was the the structure that you saw that um, we filmed at, mm-hmm. um, and in both of those cases, you know, I, I had a meeting with the client at one point where I was pretty well convinced he was about to fire me, <laughs> and you know, in my way of thinking, in in both of those instances, the issue wasn't my fault; it was out out of my control, but. He wanted, he needed somebody to hold accountable, and I was the guy. And the fact that it was like LA County jerking us around, <laughs> you know, nothing I can do about it. And yet, you know, I'm the one who has to sit there and take it, you know. And I think when you're in that situation, and I, I'm pleased to be able to say that it's literally only been twice. Both the same guy, you know. I think what it takes to to recover that trust is to just fall on your sword, right? You're just like you're not making excuses, you know. You're not saying no, no, you're wrong, even though (laughs) you're screaming in the back of your head, Mm. no, no, you're wrong. You say, I'll fix it, I'll get it done, I'll make it right, and you know, sometimes that costs you money. It did in these cases. You know, and hopefully you learn something from it, you know, so that you're better protected the next time around and you're less likely to find yourself in such an unpleasant situation. But, you know, stuff happens and things on especially on bigger projects that, you know, you just couldn't control for. 
And hopefully you have a client who understands that, but sometimes you don't. And they get angry. They're upset. And then all you can do is do your very best to be as candid as possible and to assure them that despite the current bump in the road, that you're going to get it done and you're going to get it done right. And we've always been able to do that. Along those lines, we talked a lot about building trust with the customer, but are are there instances you can think of where you start talking to a client and you realize that this client is just not going to be a good client for you and you've needed to back away? Can you talk a little bit about that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have a... Uh, a CRM, and one of our options in the CRM is decline to bid. And I exercise that every now and then. And, you know, it can be for a variety of reasons. You can have somebody who, you know, first of all, I would say with the vast majority of our clients, we have kind of an immediate sense of rapport, like we are on the same page with each other. Sometimes you don't get that. And sometimes you have somebody who, despite you trying to explain to them what you and your professional judgment believe will or will not work for them for a project, they want to overrule you. And that they're not really interested in hearing um, your professional judgment. They just want somebody who's going to come in and put up something at a certain price, and that's all they're interested in. And I tend to walk away from folks like that because my sense is that they'll tell you that's what they want at the time. And then down the road, they're going to be upset because, yeah, your judgment was correct. And it's not going to do what it is that they think it's going to do. And now you have an unhappy client on your hands. And now you have to somehow try to remedy that. And that's a bigger headache than I want. I would rather walk away from a potential sale then go ahead and sell something to somebody and then come back and have it be problematic down the road. Mm-hmm. Different topic. Have you ever suggested to a potential client that they look elsewhere for another bid? We tell clients typically that unless they're a personal referral, so if a prior client has recommended us to them, then I don't tend to suggest that they go off and get other quotes. But if we're just talking to somebody who happened to find us on the web or whatever, we always encourage them to get other quotes. I think I think that's proper due diligence on their part. You know, and sometimes we lose gigs that way. So, you know, we just had somebody come back and say, oh, no, we were too expensive. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, I told you. You get what you pay that. for. I'm not, sorry? <laughs> you get what you pay for. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and we're, we're very candid with people that, you know, we're not going to be the cheapest bid you're going to get. I mean, if you get three bids and they're all, you know, higher than we are, boy, I want to see those bids, but that's not going to be the case. So, you know, we're not trying to win jobs by being the lowest price. We try to win jobs by, you know, having the highest value proposition and building a relationship that says, we understand we're in this for the long haul together. And that's, you know, that's our goal is to have a long-standing relationship here. So I just want to start wrapping up, but can you think of anything that you did at the beginning uh, when you launched the business that you d- 
that you don't do anymore that you learn, well, this, this technique just doesn't work or, or this, this is not a good way to communicate with someone? Um, well, I think when we started, you know, the volume was a lot lower. And so it, we tried to hand deliver proposals to people and sit down with them then and there and go over them. And that's just not practical. So we don't do that. When we send out a proposal, we offer to meet with a potential client and go over the proposal with them. But we find at this point that it's more efficient for everybody to just like get the proposal to them rather than try to set up that second meeting. So that's something we did in the beginning that we don't do any longer. That's probably the biggest thing that I can think of just off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. A little while ago, you said that this whole process, building trust, it's all more, it's more than just a sale. So I'm wondering, what is it for you? So, we make a big point of referring to the people we do business with as clients and not customers. And a customer relationship is a transactional relationship. It's a sale. You go into Starbucks, you give the barista your money, they give you your latte and off you go. And that's really the extent of it. There's no element of trust there. There's no ongoing relationship building there other than coincidentally. A client relationship is a trust relationship. Attorneys have clients. I used to be an attorney. So you have that kind of a relationship with someone, which means that you're putting their interests ahead of your own in the sense that you're not going to sell them something that's not going to work for them. And you're not going to oversell them. You know, you're not going to do the kinds of things that some folks do because in the short term, it makes them more money. You know, everybody be happy making more money. I'm, I'm right there with them. But there's ways to do that. And developing a relationship with them gives you the opportunity to have referrals. It gives you the opportunity to have subsequent follow-on business. And it builds the kind of reputation in the community that you want. And, you know, that's not something that you can pay for you have to develop it over time and you have to work really hard to develop it. And, you know, that's been the approach that we've taken. Um, that client focus, I think, is part of what sets us apart from a lot of other companies. And um, I think it's something that our clients truly uh, appreciate in the process. And with that client focus, you're focusing on building these longer term relationships um, do you see opportunities to to remarket to your client base? And, and it's funny okay. you mention that because I'm, I'm actually working on um, a mailing that I'm going to be sending out to existing clients because I think we've finally settled upon a storage oh, option that we that we like um, and I think has the potential to work well with our installed base, which you know is basically all end phase. So mm -hmm. we're looking for an AC coupled solution. So, you know, we're going to remarket to these folks and, you know, say this seems like a reasonable option and we're looking forward to making it available to folks. And if you're interested, let us know and we'll see what makes sense. So, yeah, I do think that. The other thing I, I should mention, going back more toward the uh, acquisition side of this, um, is that 
we have basically a 0% cancellation rate. People sign contracts with us, we put projects on their houses or their buildings, their businesses. People don't sign contracts and then cancel them. And the reason for that is really very simple. By the time someone signs a contract with us, they know exactly what they're getting into. Um, they don't have any unanswered questions. They don't have any qualms about what they're doing. They feel good about it, and they're excited to be doing it. And that's really the only way we want to do this. So we want people to be as excited about going solar as we are about the prospect of helping them do so. All right. Well, we are all out of time. Jim is the president and founder of Run and Sun. He is full of wisdom, and everyone should check out his blog and read it. Jim, it's been a pleasure, as always. Thanks for taking the time today. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks, Pam. You guys have Great. a good day. All right, take care. All right.